Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. It's us again. <laughs> Hello, I'm Peter Hart and this is Gary Bain and welcome to the podcast. No, this is Gary Bain. Is it? Yeah, you're <laughs> oh. Peter Hart. Oh, I do get confused. Yeah, well that was an interesting start. What are we doing today, Pete? We're doing, well it's a, it's a start of one of our mini-series. Several of them we never end up finishing. We're still only in 1916 with Egg, but <laughs> there you go. Air War. Air War, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, the, but this one is on someone who we're both very interested in and who we found it fascinating researching into him. And that's Ian Hamilton. And this episode's called From the Cradle to Majuba Hill. Oh, I've been researching Larry Grosen. <sighs> Again. Again. <laughs> now, Ian Standish Hamilton was born in Corfu. On the 16th of January 1853. Did you know Corfu was French at the time, Pete? Yes, I did, mate. <laughs> All right. So we'd have to do him with a, a, a French accent. Then. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, oh, oh. oh no. Um, now, he was the son of Christian Hamilton, who was a captain in the 92nd Foot. That's uh, the 2nd Battalion of the Gordon Highlanders. <gasps> we know someone who's in the Gordon Highlanders. Who is that? Uh, well, he's not in it now. Former Gordon Highlander, David Barron. Oh. Minor landed gentry. Bit like Hamilton. Now, uh, Christian Hamilton would later be uh, the colonel of his battalion. Yeah. Who's his mummy? Well, his mother's Maria Carina, and uh, rather surprisingly, given the name, was she was from uh, that Anglo-Irish military family, the Gorts. We know a famous Lord Gorts, do you? Who yeah, was he? He was that famous Lord Gort of uh, the Great War fame. Well, yes, he did have some fame in the Great War, but mainly for being in charge of the BEF in 1940. That might have overwhelmed his service in the First World War. And then he was Chief Imperial General. There was General a Second <laughs> War. Yeah, I see why I've confused you. I apologise unreservedly. We haven't got to that yet, have we? Oh, well. Now, essentially, they were, as you mentioned, landed gentry, but they weren't wealthy people. No. Uh, and uh, you, you, you asked David Barron about not being wealthy. Mm. Now, by May 1853, the family moved back to Argyllshire in Scotland, 
Uh, but after the birth of... You didn't her- have much time to pick that French accent up then. No, but after the birth of her second son, unfortunately, his mother died in July 1856. Now, that had a hell of an impact on Ian Hamilton. Well, understandably. Yes. And uh, you've got a, a quote from him. Because we want to get the flavour of the man a bit with this. So here we go. There is an undying speck of tragedy embedded in the lives of us who do not possess anything beyond an artist's or a photographer's representation of the mothers who bore us. In vain does common sense say that the idealisations of the imagination must surpass the disillusionments of old age. Often I have wondered over what I should have been had she lived and felt that another and a better being would have made his number in war and peace. Hey-ho! But there it is, as it is. <laughs> I like the cheery bit of it. Hey-ho! <laughs> now, uh, this uh, struck a tone with you, didn't it? Well, my my own childhood was motherless, Pete, as you well know. I from, do. From she the age of four. Yeah. <sighs> You're a sort of almost like Ian Hamilton, then. Yeah, I'm... Um, you had a military career? Yes. <laughs> finished in abject failure? I've been to Corfu. <laughs> And it finished in abject failure. I'm changing the subject. All right. <laughs> now, the children's father uh, was away in India for some 13 years. 13 years. So the boys were raised in a household dominated by their aunts and a Swiss maid. When he was 10 years old, Hamilton was sent away to a private school at Cheam. Now, that was a bloody awful experience for him. Uh and well, I loved we we were it was some of the books we've read about this were his own books. Uh, uh, one was when I was a boy or I was a boy or something. And uh, he used to he'd been used to only wearing a kilt, Gary. We near nothing underneath. Well, he found trousers uncomfortable. Yeah. So do you? Don't you? I do. <laughs> and I don't wear a kilt. But there uh, was also a bullying culture, and he had to learn to stand up for himself. Yeah, fisty cuffs. You know, even though they're just kids. Now, there's a bit of debate in the family as to whether Hamilton should go to Eton uh, or the newly created then, it's old now, Wellington School, uh, which was fundamentally for prospective army officers. Uh, And they chose Wellington. Uh, How did he do at Wellington then? Well, he found the going a bit easier and and, uh, reacted with indolence and poor timekeeping. So, uh, another thing he has in common with you then. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. He was caned a hundred times for being late for lessons. Well, I'm not quite sure who counted how many times he was caned. Well, uh... But he he also continued to stand up for himself. And this time you're going to tell us what Ian Hamilton has to say. During the next two or three terms, I learned to watch my step, to use my fists... Not scientifically, no straight left yet, uh, but effectively enough to carry me through many skirmishes and scraps as well as three set battles. Two with boys senior to myself and one the hardest with a boy who was a term junior and probably a few months younger. He was a burly chap from Yorkshire. Uh, We know a burly chap from Yorkshire. And the encounter was bloody enough to satisfy even the juvenile patrons of the ring who crowded around us there was no referee and there were no rounds we were dragged apart to enjoy a bit of a breather every now and then during which our our faces were mopped with awful schoolboy handkerchiefs soaked in water which afterwards lay about the ground all dabbled or daubed with blood Mm. 
Well, I hope they were soaked in water. Yeah, the, in the end, it was called a draw, and uh, that was much to the uh, dislike of everybody. Hamilton thought that was unfair, and all apparently all the audience wanted the other boy to win, the younger lad to win, so everybody was upset. Now, Hamilton's father heard from friends in the war office that the purchase of commissions was soon to be abolished, and that the summer of 1870 would see one mass examination of candidates for direct commissions. So Hamilton was assigned to a specialist crammer. What's a crammer? Well, exactly what it says. It's cramming, the clue in the word. <laughs> cramming the information in, getting in there, revision, to ensure that he passed. Now, his father offered some sage advice. I don't like my own father. And this is what Lieutenant Colonel Christian Hang Hamilton on. Didn't says. didn't your father tell you to bugger off? <laughs> yes. This is what Lieutenant Colonel Christian Hamilton says. There is one thing very certain, and that is that from this time forth, you must think of nothing but work, work, work. Every thought that interferes with hard, unremitting study must be driven out of your head most resolutely and firmly, unless you wish to disgrace us all. This is the only chance you will have, I believe. Now, um, Hamilton was very keen on the army. His father had been in the army. He was a, he, he loved the army. So he wanted to do well, and he did do well, didn't he? Yeah, he passed 76 out of 404. And it's interesting, because a lot of the ones above him were actually, uh, they, they were going for the Indian office and things, and they'd just done the army office uh, uh, exam as a sort of failsafe. Um, well, does he decide to go straight to uh, Royal Military College, Sandhurst? No, he decides to spend a year overseas studying German tactics and other military subjects under General Dammers. Hmm. Hmm, who's General Dammers? He's German. Is he? Well, in fact, he was a Hanoverian. Uh, he'd fought against the Prussians to some success at uh, Langersalz, and uh, he remained aide de camp to the ex king of Hanover. I, I, I did look it up on him, uh, and uh, I liked that battle because he'd actually won the battle, but then all his troops ran out of ammunition and the Prussians came back, basically, is, is I think the uh, short version of what happened. Uh, now, Hamilton also learnt German to add to the French he'd been taught in childhood. And he came to respect, if not like the Germans, admiring the way they set order, punctuality and service above the love of money. Um, now, uh, what did he, how did, when he, when he, when he gets to Royal Military College, he's, he's lost a year's seniority, I'd have said, by doing all this. But, uh, does he, uh, does he set to with a vim, you know, really put his back to the thing? What was his dad said? A hard, unremitting study, you know. Does he do that? Yeah, he put his head down and shirked his duties, oh. concentrating on horsey pursuits like drag hunting, which was an equestrian sport, you know, where, where they hunt a trail of uh, an artificially laid scent with hounds. Not a foxy woxy. No, so it's, it's, you know, dead animals dragged about, basically. Um, he wanted a commission in the Golden Highlanders, but with no vacancy, he was commissioned into the 12th Regiment. Which is that? The Suffolk Regiment. Fine body of men. Serving around Athlone in Ireland. Now, here, he, he carries on. He's a dilettante uh, sub subaltern. A what? A, a dilettante, you know. <laughs> I should have left that to you, shouldn't I? Yes. Uh, concentrated on hunting, shooting and fishing. Um, well, uh, in that, he's not much different from most of his contemporaries, is he? Not at that time in the army, no. I want to make, yeah, he's not, He's. I mean, we're painted quite a bad picture of him here, but actually that's just half the course at this time. Then his chance came to transfer to the Golden Highlanders. And he takes it, doesn't he? Yeah, in November 1873, aged 20, he sailed aboard HMS Jumna 
to join them at Multan in India. Well, I expect one thing made him full of joy and, uh, and uh, the joys of spring and let, let, let a bit of air around. Uh... Yes, he was overjoyed to be back in the kilt. Yes. But at the same time, he was introduced to the utter tedium of life as a subaltern in India. Now, what's this sent around? Well, it sounds fun in some ways. Because <laughs> uh, it, it also, besides the military duties which are dull, uh, it, it features a lot of excessive drinking in the officer's mess uh, and, and big game hunting, which, which is, uh, at the time, I mean, it's abhorrent to us, but at the time it was a, a major attraction and very, you know, it wasn't in any way un- wrong, was it? No, and as a result, the mess bills were high. And it was only a generous annual allowance of £200 from his father that allowed him to keep his head above water. Yeah, the, the Gordon Highlands were famous for, uh, if anybody visited, they were they were treated to like royalty in the mess, which, of course, the subalterns, well, all the officers had, had to, to pay, pay for. for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In truth, at that time, the Gordon Highlanders... No, don't say this, Gary, don't say it. I emphasised that time. The Gordon Highlanders was a dreadful regiment. Their record impeccable, but saddled with stupid traditions. Well, yeah, th- this is true. Uh, rifle practice, musketry as it was then called, uh, was ignored uh, because, uh, to be honest, how would they achieve any tasks set them in well, battle? at the point of a much fetishised bayonet. Yes, um, they, they, they had a, a bunch of stupid traditions. One of the most gormless was that uh, no Gordon officer ever had or ever would apply to the Staff College Camberley. Uh, uh, another, well, another just stupid thing. What's that? Well, that they wouldn't ever dream of volunteering for any active service away from the battalion. But Hamilton himself was changing. In what way? What do you mean changing? You mean he's growing up a bit? He's growing up a bit. And once more, you're going to tell us what Ian Hamilton says. Life, it seemed to me, was in the main a struggle against death. The world was a battlefield. A soldier, a true soldier, it seemed to me, was the one exception to the general rule of struggle against death. To him, the call of danger was a call of duty. He must behave as if he wanted to lose his life, ever even seeking out danger, putting himself into the hands of God. And if he was to get through, get through he would. Hmm, quite a, a dark view of life. Yes, a dark view. But it, but, but one that, that, um, he's got a, a romantic view of, of a soldier's life. The soldier willing to sacrifice his own life for the others, the, 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 the joy of battle, if you like. It's all this is, it's, and, and he's beginning. What, how would you sum up what's beginning to happen to him? Well, he's beginning to take a military career seriously. Which in the Conservative Gordons was quite weird. Yeah, it 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 was very strange to a lot of the subalterns. So here he is, an absolutely typical young subaltern, you know, and then starts to mature to behave in a different manner. So give me some examples. What does he do that for the Gordons is weird? Well, for starters, he studied for, took, and passed the lower standard examination in Hindustani. Almost unheard of. And later he takes the higher standard as well, as you'd be not surprised to know. Um, and, and, and what's more, he, how, does he, how, does he, how does he perfect his Hindustani? Well, he seeks out at every opportunity the Indian rank and file in the uh, cantonments and engaging them in talk of their homes and families. That's how I learnt German when I was in Germany. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's well, it's the best way. You can only learn a language, in my view, by speaking it. Subsequently, uh, I've forgotten every single word. Ich bin ein Studentin. Oh, yeah. I'm a female German student. <laughs> in a tactical demonstration, during a forward rush of 50 paces, he saw that his last advance would leave him about 20 yards short of a brick wall. So he used his tactical common sense and advanced his company up to the wall, firing over it and benefiting from the cover. Now, his regimental superiors were livid, but the inspecting general commended his common sense. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's a, he's beginning to think for himself, not just about learning Indian and things like that, but actually about the tactics, about the battlefield, about how to be, well, just everything. Um, he actually volunteers for a chance to lead a half-company stationed in Dera Ishmael Khan. Uh, now, that's up, near, that's up near the frontier, I think, northwest frontier. It's a bloody dismal place. It's a bit like Tottenham in many, many ways. Um, uh, but but like Tottenham, it's cheap on the mess bills. <laughs> I just had a been to the cafe at the road. It was cheap, wasn't it, Gary? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it gives him another chance to improve uh, his command skills and grasp various logistical matters because logistics are important. And do you think the Gordons take much interest in logis- logistics? Well, they don't seem to take much interest in anything other than the Gordons, to be frank. Now, Hamilton's also very keen on hunting. And he goes on expeditions across all northern, not all, across northern India, uh, the, the hill country. Uh, and and uh, this has some, you see, it's difficult for us to, 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 to sympathise or emphasise with this because we know you shouldn't now, we now uh, look down on killing, shooting big game, rare animals. They weren't so rare then, is point one I would make. Uh, they're rare because people keep shooting the buggers. Uh, but there's another point here. There is a military advantage to shoot to 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 to, to big game hunting. Can you think what that might be? Well, it, it it's getting your eye in, if you like. It's it's actually shooting the rifle, isn't it? Being an accurate shot, and 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 the the whole business of uh, of creeping round to get to the whatever it is, giant sausage beast. Or, oh, they're know. very rare now. They're, I haven't seen one. <laughs> now, on one expedition, he was invited to accompany General Sir Charles Keyes. Oh, Keyes. Keyes. Hmm. He's the daddy of uh, Roger Keyes, who uh, was the uh, of chief of staff to, to the naval chapter. Right, yeah. to, uh, I've forgotten his name. Anyway, uh, whatever his name is that's in charge of the fleet. D. Roebuck. John D. Roebuck. D. Roebuck. Sorry, it just went out of my head for a moment. Not Weems, then. No, Weems is right at the end, you big tosser. <laughs> uh, anyway, they were uh, they were wandering along, and uh, he was jabbering away <laughs> to the jabba uh, jabba jabba to to, uh, to this general who uh, who was a fairly taciturn sort. So jabba 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 jabba, and then suddenly something happens. What happens, Gary? Well, suddenly all around us was a mob of wild waziri gripping our horses by their heads. They were just there. I never saw a sign of a soul till they stood there. This was the moment when, had I been alone, I would have lugged out my colt and the next moment would have been sliced into 50 pieces. Now, at this point, the uh, general, who for, <laughs> quite naturally had been totally ignoring and taciturn, silence, dignified silence, he, uh, he bursts into voice. A perfect push to a speaker, he waved his hands to them with a gesture of friendly welcome and exclaiming, In the name of God, I am glad to meet you. He asked them some questions. They said they were on their way to Burma to buy camels, 
but unluckily they had no money. Aha, he said, I'm afraid you will have to sell some of those pistols whose handles I see peeping out from under your poshteens. This joke was not at all to their liking, and then it was that their fingers began to steal towards their knives. But again he laughed and said, Let me tell you that you are the strangest caravan of travellers I have ever met. You have come all this long way from Kaniguram, where no camels can live, to buy camels, though you have no money. There is only one explanation. You must be magicians. Apparently in Pushtu this was a very good joke, for they rocked with laughter and let go our horses' heads. Gallop, 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 gallop. Off they went with a whoosh, a whooshity-tushity-tush. Top speed, off they go. They'd survived. All thanks to this uh, this, this senior officer using his brain. Uh, brilliant stuff. And his language skills. And his language skills, which, yes, absolutely. What a great point, Gary. Thank you. I'll get my coat. Now, uh, so around this time, there's a, for another career move. He was given his first six-month leave from January to June 1878. And the War Office chose this time to order him to attend a course at the School of Musketry at Hythe. Something his regiment would never have allowed him to volunteer for. Well, uh, how does he uh, react? Well, he loves it. He absolutely loves it. And he passes with flying colours. Uh, and when he gets back to the Gordons uh, in far off India, um, after his six-month leave, he's appointed as musketry instructor. It's the archaic voice. It's rifle, but yeah. Uh, and he, but it's still, the, 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 the battalion are still set in their ways, aren't they? Yeah, and this is what Ian Hamilton said. I sweated. I lectured, I begged, I made bad jokes. I even filled the pouches of the battalion with ball cartridges for private practice out of my own slender purse. Did it work? Well, slowly, yeah, they improved. Uh, they did, in fact, become the best shooting battalion in all India. But that doesn't mean much, I think, is what you... I mean, it, it, they're getting better, but it's a very low bar, isn't it, at the time? Yeah, uh, his shooting experience also caused him to foresee the abandonment of close order fighting. You, do you mean uh, like in Napoleonic times, shoulder to shoulder? Mm. And the prospects for the domination of future battlefields by uh, scattered sharpshooters armed with modern rifles. Mm, you can see it coming. Now, in 1876, the Afghanistan tribes, it's a troublesome part of the world, that. Uh, they'd uh, roughly ejected the British. <laughs> you kick boot. Uh, and in the autumn of 1878, uh, a series of British columns were 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 were, were manoeuvring about, intent on restoring British control of the frontier region. It's uh, it's the, uh, the, the the between the the frontier between Britain and Russia as well. It's an important place. How's it go? Well, after the initial fighting, the Second Golden Islanders were ordered up to join the uh, Kuram Field Force, commanded by Major General Roberts. Hamilton, he was hampered by a severe bout of malaria and was sent to recuperate at the base headquarters at the mountain pass of Piwa Kotal. And you're going to tell us what Ian Hamilton says. Well, it's interesting because he's supposed to be too ill. But anyway, he says uh, he's out. Uh, he was allowed out. He says this. I was supposed to be too ill to walk and was riding through the forest with a young brother officer, Polly Forbes. Ooh, same as my Polly. What, Forbes? No, Polly. <laughs> That was a bit that came to my mind. Uh, who had been sent to look after me by my side. When we were startled by shots which came from the deodars surrounding us. And still more startled when we saw some British soldiers running in disorder down a steep hillside on our right. 
They were the first of the new short service type we had seen. Intercepting them, we were told that their signalling piquet had just been rushed by 15 to 20 Afghans and that two of their men were missing. So, being full of fight, not flight, that's the other lot, fight, Forbes and I decided it was our duty to attack. Sent off two of the men on our ponies to give the alarm in the barracks, which are not far away, and drawing our revolvers, began to climb the hill, followed at a discreet interval by the only runaway who had brought his rifle with him, and who climbed after us just fast enough to save himself from the court-martial, which afterwards sat upon his comrades. Within ten paces of the summit, there was a rustle in the undergrowth, and our hearts jumped, but it was only a, a, a wounded Kahar, who lay there with a, an Afghan bullet through his chest, and had yet the, he yet had the pluck to cheer us on. Next moment, we were into the post, a small open redoubt. It was unoccupied. There were rifles neatly piled, the ammunition, equipment, flags and heliograph, untouched. No killed, no wounded, no sign of the enemy. Everything just as it had been left by the young soldiers when they bolted in their panic. Then Polly Forbes and I each picked up a rifle, loaded it, fixed bayonets and mounted guard, finger on the trigger, waiting for what that dark forest might bring forth. No Afghans, not a move, not a sound, until a company of the 8th King's Regiment came out. So uh, the, 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 the short service, there'd been a change in, in, in the, the length of time that regulars had to serve, because it used to be 30-odd years, and it came down to, I think it was 12. I can't there was remember. also a change in the way to spell picket. Yes, don't talk to the pen and sword and iron. A lot of dispute about this. Now, the two young officers, they then decided to pursue the Afghans down the other side of the hill. Hamilton, weak from his fever, got left behind and was ambushed. And uh, this is what Hamilton goes on to say. Yeah, I like this quote because it's quite self-depreciating. He says this, Some shooting took place. I managed to keep them at bay with my revolver from behind the trunk of a huge tree until someone came up. I fired six shots altogether, but missed as I was very seedy, which made my hands shaky. Three men enfiladed my position and made it hot for me, and the old muller who'd led the raiders fired at point-blank range with a flintlock jezail, that's a sort of rifle muskety thing, that missed fire. Eventually he was shot, not by me, because <laughs> the others come up and rescue him just in time. I like the fact he's honest about it. He doesn't say, oh, shot seven of them. He, you know, he, he makes it clear. This story was heard by General Sir Frederick Roberts and it clearly impressed him as he made a mental note of the young Hamilton. Now, possibly as a result, Hamilton was picked out to be ADC to Brigadier General Redan Massey, who was commanding the Cavalry Brigade. More useful experience. Yeah, because he's an infantryman and there he is getting some cavalry experience. Um, while the Gordons were engaged in the Battle of Charassia, not a well-known battle to either of us, I think it's fair to say. Uh, on the 6th of October, 1879, uh, Hamilton leads a troop of the 5th Punjab Cavalry in a charge. And uh, you'll notice he's quite sceptical as to the value of the arme blanche, i.e. swords, uh, edged weapons, uh, lances and things. So, uh, so what does he say, Gary? The dust clouds of the Chardair Valley... The 5th Punjab Cavalry, red puggeries, blue swords flashing, the galloping line, and I also galloping with that sensation of speed which the swiftest motor car can never impart. My claymore was drawn nearer, nearer, every stride nearer. Those dust clouds 
flecked here and there with a flicker of moving colours, the foothills speckled with puffs of white smoke. Wonderful! A big jump and I nearly fall off. My horse has leapt over a dead tribesman. Then, in the thick of it, Afghans in little knots, or else lying on their backs, whirling their big knives to cut off the legs of our horses. A hell of a scrimmage in feet, until the sowers got to work in couples, one with sword uplifted, the other pulling his carbine out of the bucket and making the enemy spring to their feet and be cut down or be shot as they lay. Dust, shouts, shots, clash of steel, only a nameless little skirmish, and yet it is a favourite picture amongst the many that come back to me in my dreams. Yeah, a lot of us uh, think about various instances from our past in our dreams. Uh, I, I would, I, that wouldn't be a favourite picture of mine if I'd be. It sounds like bloody terrifying. Now, to him, it was the carbine rifle that dispatched most that day. Yeah, because they couldn't reach them lying on the ground, hacking at the uh, the, the feet of the horses. And, uh, but but oh, a point I'd make is that, that I think you'd have found Lancers would have had no trouble. I, I accept that, yeah. Uh, the cavalry had not had its day. Cavalry's had its day post-1920, really. Um, but there you go. It's on its way out, though, isn't it? We all agree about that. Um, the, how's his health holding up in India? It's uh, the graveyard of uh, a lot of young officers. Well, his malaria returned and coupled with dysentery, mm, malaria and dysentery. Well, Bain's disease. Uh, he was sent home. But on reaching England, he felt so much better, he immediately set off back to India. <laughs> Must have loved him. Um, he rejoins the second Gordon Highlanders on the day of the victory of uh, Kandahar on the 1st of September 1880. Again, a battle of which I'm in complete ignorance. But I bet it's dead interesting. This is what the punters, we say to you, Punters. Punters. <laughs> Honestly, this is what militarists are about. These battles we've never heard of, they're the really interesting ones, not the Battle of the Somme, if you see what I mean. The Battle of the Somme is interesting as well, all right, before I get into it. But what I mean is something you don't know about is more exciting. Interesting. That's why we're so interested and excited, because there's lots we don't know about. <laughs> yeah, because there's lots of subjects to chatter about. The Gordons, they were ending their long stint in India, so they were moved to Cawnpore, ready to return to England in early 1881. What did they hear about there? Because something in the world's gone oh, all wrong. Well, they heard of the outbreak of the First Boer War. It wasn't known as the first thing. It was no. just the Boer War then. <laughs> uh, and that furthermore, the British were not doing so well. So Hamilton, by then the senior subaltern, he cabled the following message to General Sir Evelyn Wood. We've heard of Evelyn Wood, and it's interesting, these same names occur. He appears in the early podcast about Haig a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, and, and arguably was a sponsor of Haig. Uh, so uh, Ian Hamilton sends this. Personal, from subalterns, 92nd Highlanders. Splendid battalion, eager service, much nearer Natal than England. Do send. Now, that's uh, a bit naughty, isn't it? It is, but and to general surprise, Wood complies. And on the 6th of January, 1881, the battalion was ordered to Natal. And we're going to take now uh, just a short break. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome back. On the 26th of February 1881, the second Gordon Highlanders were encamped in front of a spur of the Drakensberg Mountains with the mass of Majuba Hill dominating the western yeah, end. Yeah, they've gone almost straight there. They're, they're, this, they're, they're flung in at the deep end, aren't they? There's no two ways about it. Uh, what's the situation at, um, well, it's in front of Majuba Hill? Well, it's not good. The Boer general, Piet Joubert, had already inflicted two defeats on General Sir George Colley over the past few weeks. Furious, Colley devised a secret plan. Oh, was it cunning? It was very cunning. He was going to lead a night march of infantry up to the summit of Majuba Hill and thereby force the Boers out of their strong defensive position astride Lang's neck. Foolishly, to allow all his regiments to take part, Colley took up a really mixed force so to him it's a, an exciting adventure and a bit of a game they all want to take part do they who does he take well, he takes two companies of the 2nd Northamptonshire Regiment two of the 60th Rifles three of the 2nd Gordon Highlanders and one shore party of sailors yeah they're from a naval brigade they're taken from HMS Dido and another ship can't remember it's but that would add greatly to the command and control difficulties yeah you've got what four real forces four forces None of whom have the same officers. They don't know what they're doing. Different way, methods of working. Different. Uh, oh dear, it's just stupid. Really, he should have just taken the Gordon Highlanders or just taken the Northamptonshire Regiment. But that's ridiculous. Now, Hamilton, he'd just come in from PK duty. Picket. Thank you. You said PK earlier. I was, I was being posh. Yeah. Uh, at twenty one hundred on the twenty sixth of February, when his company was ordered to fall in by 21.30 and begin a night march. And this is what Ian Hamilton had to say. 
A party of British sailors and soldiers had been marching under a heavy equipment with full-size picks and shovels, three days' rations, 70 rounds of MH, that's Martini Henry, ammunition, waterproof sheets and greatcoats. Every now and then a man would fall and then there would be a clatter, curses and orders. Silence! <laughs> a fool would light up and there would be a call of Out with that match! <laughs> or once as a sort of splintering up at the head of the column and a horrid stifled sort of muttering. Here they come! Fix bayonets! Under these circuit conditions, the most fantastic fears are bred in the imaginations of men. Yet we were seasoned troops come straight from a long campaign in Afghanistan. But this is the result of marching men in the night for God knows where. For until midnight was passed, only the commander and his staff officer had the remotest idea where we were marching or even where we were. So that, that, that bayonet alarm was a false alarm. There wasn't anybody there. But people are panicking. It's a bad start, isn't it, Gary? Sorry, I've gone deaf from all your shouting. That was just... It's just the way that people shout. Mm. Three companies of infantry and the naval party from HMS Dido, interesting name for a ship, uh, had been Not dropped... dildo, Gary. Oh, God. Had been dropped off to guard the approach. Four companies of infantry, two each of the Northamptons and Gordon Highlanders, about 365 men in all, one for every day of the year, carried on up the side of Majuba Hill. It ought to be pointed out that I've seen a variety of figures for all the, uh, these statistics, so uh, let's not fixate on that number. There was no artillery because the hill was too steep. Yeah, we're going to put some pictures and a map up of the top of Majuba Hill. Which if I we remember. If we remember. But actually, if you go on the internet, there's bags of stuff about it. And an extremely good uh, video from uh, the Red Coat Post podcast on it, which I urge you all to watch. I, in fact, I would have urged Gary to watch it, but he wouldn't bother. No. And this is what Ian Hamilton says. The last few hundred feet were precipitous. CP, precipitous. Steep. Mm. On hands and knees, we hauled ourselves up by the tussocks. Oh, have you ever been hauled up by your tussocks? Many a time. <laughs> we hauled ourselves up by the tussocks of long grass. Now and then a man would fall with a hideous clatter whilst his arms and equipment went to glory. Then all would hold on like petrified men for half a minute, expecting a volley from up above. Sorry. None came, and at last, at about 4am, we began to trickle into the saucer-shaped tabletop of the extinct volcano and found it empty. Not a shot, not a sound, and now we all knew that, without one life dropped in the effort, we had captured the main bastion of the Boer Fortress, that at daybreak, those lights twinkling at our feet would resolve themselves into the Boer Lag. Yeah, it's a sort of, when I say it's like, a, it's, 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 it's sort of a plateau with a rim round it, and then there's a couple of copters, as they're called, small hills that are actually dotted around as well, two or three of those. It's a very interesting place. I'd love to go there. The uh, Boers had failed to occupy the Majuba Hill, something Hamilton attributed to their innate laziness and assumption it could not be climbed by British infantry in the dark. So their pickets had been withdrawn. Yeah, during the night they were, they were withdrawn, yeah. Yeah, they were going to return in daylight. Unfortunately, there was a bit more laziness on the show. Uh, who would that be? Well, Ian Hamilton explains. 
The neglect of a, a mere military detail, an aberration of ordinary soldierly practice by a brilliant staff officer whose career had given him no executive experience was to turn glory into disgrace, uh, vision into blindness, triumph into defeat. Fresh from the victories of Afghanistan, every private in the 92nd Gordon Highlanders knew that whenever a detachment happened to hit on a weak spot in the enemy's line and made it good, they built a sanga or stonework defence as a matter of course, unless the ground happened to be stoneless when they had to dig themselves in. Apologists have since urged that upon this occasion the men were exhausted by their night march and that the general had rightly refused, therefore, to set them to work with the heavy navvies, spades and pickaxes they had so laboriously lugged up for that express purpose. Whatever General Colley himself may have felt, I have never felt less tired in my life than when I looked at the Boer army lying at our feet, and my men felt the same. Now, this Colley, he's a, this is interesting, because is this making you think of anywhere? So is this... There's this brilliant staff officer who'd risen to high rank in the British Army, i.e. Collie, uh, who had uh, no experience in command of men and uh, who uh, was theoretically fine but didn't know how to what to do in action. Can you think of anybody later in Hamilton's career that's like this? No. Stopford. Never heard of him. Stopford, who commanded the Ninth Corps at at Suvla, uh, you know damn well you I were. Do. You I went to his headquarters. You yeah. were. I was going to say we stood in his headquarters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I went on an adventure down to the sea that we mustn't talk about. Um, yeah. Um, that's the point. Uh, that that history does repeat itself, doesn't it? Because Collie, for Collie, you could read Stopford here, couldn't you? It's quite interesting. Yeah, and he's overconfident as well. What we does could, he say? We could stay here forever, he said to his chief of staff, Herbert Stewart. So he decided to let them rest rather than begin to entrench themselves immediately. Now, Captain McGregor, he's ADC to uh, General Collie, uh, took Hamilton's company to the eastern side of the plateau and directed him to extend to his left until he was in touch with the Northamptonshires. Uh, he, 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 st he starts putting them out uh, at first six paces apart between them, but uh, he has to make it 12 to cover all the ground. He also ordered his men to start building a stone sanger. But by this time, he's, it's all been left a bit late. Uh, yeah, it's almost daylight. It's almost daylight. And this is what Hamilton says. About this time, the first shots were fired at a party of about 30 boars who rode close under the hill, unconscious of our presence. Had a heavy fire been opened on them, they must have been all killed. But some of the senior officers, not being sure if the general wished firing to begin, no orders having been given, made the men cease. Just then, I noticed large numbers of the enemy crossing through a melee field about 1,200 yards off into a ravine. Now, the, the Boers were brilliantly led, brilliantly led. Uh, they were amateur soldiers, but they knew what they were doing, the people in charge. And what they're doing is filtering across. Uh, the, and they, they, they're, they're using the lie of the land, uh, following through folds in the ground, to get within 500 yards of Hamilton's position. And from there, they open a heavy and accurate fire. And this is what Hamilton says. 
This fire increased in intensity until about 80 rifles had been brought to bear on us. Every now and then the bullets would pelt in extra thickly when some 10 or 15 of the enemy would come out of the ravine and rush for about 20 yards across the open to the bottom of the hill when they got so underneath us that we lost sight of them. Now, that, that you, you can understand that, Gary. On any hill, there's a point when you get close to it that you can't be seen from the top of it. When, and he carries on. When about a 100 got to the hill in this uh, got onto the hill in this manner i thought it my duty to go back and report the matter to the general i.e collie it was rather a nasty business getting up as i had to run about 15 paces exposed to the enemy's fire i found everyone on the body of the plateau the main area was very comfortable eating or sleeping or smoking the general thanked me for my information and i went back so this is a brave act by uh, Hamilton dashing across. He could easily have been killed. Uh, and Collie has just... Well, Hamilton couldn't get any reaction to his request for reinforcements. Time and time, he ran back to report that 200 men were on the hill, then 350 men, then 400. All he ever got was five men and one officer. That's all that he was sent. Right. Then the coming storm burst, and Ian Hamilton goes on to say, Detached from the main hill and about 70 yards distant from it was a knoll, that's one of the copters I mentioned, the top of which was only uh, very little lower than the plateau. All of a sudden, about half past 12 o'clock, a tremendous fire was opened from this knoll on a part of my company immediately to my left. A space of ground 60 yards long and held by five or six of my men was covered with bullets. Two or three of the poor fellows were killed at once. One or two ran back. Where I and my men lay seemed to be out of the direct line of fire. So that gradually they're getting into positions where they can shoot them to bits. Not all of them perhaps, but they're getting positions of, of, of well, they're enfilading them. Now, Hamilton saw the reserve companies coming forward and he, he did gain a good impression of them. They stopped short of Hamilton's men and opened a heavy, unaimed fire, which had little or no effect. But when the Boers fired in response, it had a terrible effect, causing casualties and the whole party retreated into the dip, which ran across the centre of the plateau. So any good impression he had of them coming forward was soon dissipated by what happened to them in action. Yeah, I, I, I phrased that badly. I do it was then that the Boers attacked. And, and at this point, I'd just like to apologise for some of the old-fashioned, um, somewhat offensive language in this next quote. Ian Hamilton says... Very soon had to be to retreat ourselves, as in an incredibly short space of time, the gap in our line, lately held by the reserve, was filled with boars and a sprinkling of kaffirs, who advanced with their rifles in their shoulders, ready to fire a snapshot the, dis the instant they saw anyone. Very few of our men got back to the second line. As I turned to run, I saw the boars swarming out of the ravine from which they had been so long annoying us and coming straight up at us. Now they fall back to the centre of the plateau and, and there they're, they're, they're trying to reorganise. These are, you know, these are good officers, good soldiers. Uh, but then uh, what do the boars do then? Well, they open up from their front and right flank. Hamilton can only see one way out. What's that? to counter-attack before the Boers could consolidate their gains. This is one of the things we've always said, isn't it? If you're going to counter-attack, do it immediately. Don't give them time to sort the, themselves out. And preferably be German. 
Yes, Germany are very good at counterattacks. Very good at counterattacks. And this is what Ian Hamilton said. I myself was on the extreme right of our line and getting a few men together, I attempted a charge but was stopped by Colonel Hay, my commanding officer, who thought there were too few men, as indeed there were. I then ran down to General Collie and saluted, said, I do hope, General, that you will let us have a charge and you will not think it presumption on my part to have come up and asked you. Sir George replied, No presumption, Mr Hamilton, but we will wait until the Boers advance on us and give them a volley and charge. It is my firm belief that had a charge been ordered at this moment, we should have cleared the hill. The men near me, at any rate, were furious at having to run back from the first position and had a, and had a few encouraging words been spoken to them and the pipes told to play up. I feel, that's bagpipes, I feel confident they would have followed their officers anywhere. And he may or may not have been right. We don't know. Uh, Hamilton always thought to the end of his life that if they'd counterattacked immediately in force with what was left on the top of the hill, they could have bounced them off before they were steady. Sir George Colley from uh, Bolton. Yeah, did you not know that? No. Now, they'd missed their chance, if chance it was, and the situation was getting worse by the minute. And Ian Hamilton said, I was standing to the right of General Colley and ten paces uh, from him firing into the smoke, for I could not see anyone. With a rifle I'd picked up, Sir George appeared quite cool and was pacing up and down slowly with his revolver in his right hand. Suddenly, to my front, and not more than 15 yards distant, I saw a rifle barrel stuck up out of a tuft of grass, evidently to allow of a cartridge being put into the breach. Looking more carefully, I made out the head and shoulders of a boar. I put up my rifle and covered him, but just as I began to press the trigger, he sent a bullet through my left wrist, causing my rifle to fall from my hand unfired. I turned round in despair and saw that the whole line had given way. Sir George Colley had turned in the direction the troops were firing, uh, were flying, and holding his revolver high over his head, shouted out either, Retire and hold by the ridge, or Steady and hold by the ridge. I cannot be quite sure now which it was, but it was something to the effect that we were to hold by the last ridge of the hill. Though I had a very bad start, I resolved to have a run for it, and catching my broken wrist in my right hand, I ran for my life. Just as I got to the edge of the plateau, something, either a spent bullet or a stone, knocked up by a bullet, hit me in the back of the head, and I remember no more. So uh, this is a dramatic thing. This is the final thing. Notice the Turks are shooting them to bits. They, they, Turks? Sorry. Yes, Turks. Usually, usually you fight Turks, Hamilton. The uh, Boers are, are shooting them to bits. They're not particularly attack, charging, but they, 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 they only charge when it, it, they've already broken them. Now, round about this time, Collie's killed. Uh, there's a nice memorial. Again, it's in the video on the Redcoat uh, podcast uh, video on YouTube uh, and of, of his grave. You can see it's still there. Uh, or a memorial. I'm not sure if the, the body was shifted from there, but it's his memorial. And he's killed around about this time. Uh, uh, Hamilton, he's unconscious. He's a bit lucky, really, in my view. What happens? Well, Hamilton goes on to say, I had a shave after shave, close shaves too, with death on this hill of destiny. My kilt and coat were cut in several places by bullets. A bullet passed a quarter of an inch under my armpit, another between my legs. Also, I missed by a quarter of an inch. So, I mean, he'd, he had had his wrist shattered and he'd, uh, he'd been knocked out. But 
he'd been lucky as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, when he comes to, he's a prisoner. He couldn't really complain at his treatment either. And this is what Ian Hamilton Did says he about observe, that. observes He observes quite a lot. This is what Ian Hamilton says. On the whole, the Boers were not bad fellows. They nearly all talked English. <laughs> Sorry. That's British, yeah. One of them rendered first aid and gave me a huge red bandana handkerchief to tie up my broken wrist with. The only, the only piece of loot any of us brought away from Majuba, I think. He used the top of a bully beef tin as a splint, laid my wrist on it, packed a little grass round it and tied it up uh, in, in the handkerchief. Another wild-looking creature came up with a friend to interpret and said his wife would like my sporran to hang up in her house. My my position necessitated a polite reply, so I sent Mrs. Bohr the souvenirs she wished for. I hope she appreciates it. <laughs> if you're lying on the floor and a dirty great big bloke says, I love that sporran. <laughs> now, interestingly, the Bohrs told Hamilton he was free to go. One said, quite frankly, that they did not expect him to survive his wound. Yeah, I'm always quite surprised by this. I mean, he's been shot through the wrist. Yeah, it's, it's weird. They confiscated his sword uh, and he begins to make his way back to the British lines. And this is what he says. Stumbling and falling, I slowly made my painful way back towards the camp from which we had started at 10pm uh, the previous night. At the foot of the hill, I got into a marsh and being utterly exhausted, lay down, never expecting to rise again except on judgment day. But fate, taking the form of a little dog of mine, willed otherwise. I was proud owner of a fox terrier named Patch, who had been miserable when I would not take him with me into battle. At daybreak, pickets were sent out from camp to see if they could find and bring in any stragglers from the front. Patch accompanied one of these pickets and led them straight to me. <coughs> the first I knew, he was licking my face. Perhaps that was just one of the soldiers. Yeah, mate, a bit, a bit delirious then, wasn't he? Now, for him, his campaign was over. Soon, large British reinforcements had arrived, but the British, British government had had enough and they made peace, conceding all the Boers' demands. Did this uh, resolve all the underlying issues that had caused the whole, camp, the whole war in the first place? Which, by the way, we haven't and are not going into. No, and, uh, and this made a second trial of strength almost inevitable. What would this war be called? A second Boer War. Ooh. Now, Hamilton himself was hospitalised in Newcastle, Natal. Mm, now, surgery saved the arm from amputation. It was a bad wound. It really was. Uh, and the wrist would always be weak. Uh, it's actually Charles Lister, the famous surgeon, uh, does the procedure that saves his uh, his arm. Does he uh, have weak wrists? I've got weak wrists as well, yes. Oh, they're flopping. In retrospect, Hamilton re reflected how in 1881, the army was still at the ideological juncture between traditional and modern warfare. Yeah, and, and, and they've fallen foul of the Boers, who, who, who are, they're essentially farm workers led by a few uh, experienced soldiers. There were some experienced soldiers. And they'd beaten these, the so-called British professionals. Um, but the, the, Boer, the Boer leadership had been brilliant. And they'd taken every advantage. We talked about this briefly. And if, if you look into the campaign, there's loads more about this. But they used the ground, every advantage they could wring out of the, the configuration of their ground to get as close as possible and to secure a dominant firing position 
from preferably, and they managed it from the flank for, to enfilade the British positions. So basically, what you're saying is no need to charge home. They, they were just out to destroy the British. Just shoot them to bloody bits. Yeah, uh, and and uh, this this is uh, it, it was brilliantly done. It was brilliant operation by the Boers. Uh, the, the, the butchers, Bill Gary. Again, this is approximate. I've seen different figures. For this. Well, yeah, approximately 285 British were killed, captured, or wounded. Yeah. Now, there's some general points that uh, that the Gordon, 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 Ian Hamilton raises. Um, so what are they? What, what's the first one? Well, and, and this isn't the only time this has happened. The men might carry entrenching tools, but not enough of their officers understood the need to dig in to be sure of success. Yeah. So if you're tidy, that's not an excuse. No. Uh, it's better to be uh, to be even more tired. It's better to be knackered than dead. That's it. Oh, how, how apposite that phrase is. Apposite. Yeah. Now, some regiments still wore the red tunic and pipe clay belts. No, but not the Gordons. Uh, no. Some, some of the regiments there did, but the Gordons, what were they in? Well, having come from the northwest frontier, they were the first regiment to wear khaki on campaign in Africa. Now, what happens to Hamilton then? So th- he's had his wrist shattered, his left wrist, but uh, what, what happens? Well, by August 1881, Hamilton's back in England. He found himself a bit of a hero, and he had to tell the whole story to Queen Victoria. Did he, did he get any recognition for his heroism? Well, he was recommended for the Victoria Cross, but it was decided that he was too young. But he would have plenty of other opportunities to distinguish himself. Also, looking at it, I mean, the the, the thing about the Victoria Cross that that we both think is, firstly, it's how long's a piece of string in some ways as to how you get it. Four foot. Four foot, yes. In this case, four foot then. But... What the, the 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 level of fire they faced at the Majuba Hill? Everybody in the Great War would have had a VC, if you see what I mean. Uh, it's all relative, isn't it? And it, these things are subjective. And they'd made a decision. And and to be honest, that that the fact is too young. It's just a, a decision that's been made. Yeah. Uh, would he have? Would he? Would he have other opportunities to distinguish himself? Well, I said he would, and indeed he did. Cool, blimey. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?